Well, friends, uh, hello. Uh, it's a real privilege to be with you today. Uh, and great thanks to Bishop Mark for the privilege it is uh, to be able to open God's word with the people of the Bathurst Diocese. Uh, God bless you all. I uh, trust you are encouraged as we sit under God's word together. Uh, I wonder if you recall the story of the Federal Court Justice, Sir Marcus Einfeld, who in 2006 was caught speeding by a speed camera and was required to pay a $77 fine. He contested the ticket in the Downing Centre local court by claiming that on that day he'd lent his car to an old friend, a Professor Teresa Brennan, who was visiting from the United States. He gave evidence under oath in the local court. He signed a statutory declaration to that effect. The magistrate dismissed the matter. However, a reporter for the Daily Telegraph discovered that Brennan had died in the United States three years before Einfeld claimed she had been driving his car. When challenged on this, Einfeld claimed that he'd lent his car to a different Teresa Brennan, who also lived in the United States and who had also died upon her return to the United States. He then produced a 20-page statement in detail describing the fictitious second Teresa Brennan and his supposed dealings with her. So Marcus Einfeld was found guilty of perjury and perverting the course of justice. He was convicted and sentenced to three years imprisonment with a non-parole period of two years. He was released from prison in 2011 for $77, a judge of the federal court. Friends, you don't have to be alive long to know that people always let you down. They just do. It's almost part of the human condition to have our expectations dashed at one time or another by someone who we've looked up to who has not lived up to our expectations. During 2020, we saw some of our nation's most decorated and courageous soldiers had serious moral lapses when serving our country abroad. Also during 2020, an Australian pastor Leading one, of the church's largest, uh, leading one of the world's largest churches in New York City, was stepped down from his role. The reason given for his removal was cited as leadership issues and breaches of trust, plus a recent revelation of moral failures. In 2018, the ball tampering scandal rocked the cricketing establishment and caught up none other than the captain of the Australian Test cricket team. In 2016, the New South Wales Labor leader, was accused of making unwanted advances to an ABC journalist. He later resigned from his position as leader of the opposition. Judges, soldiers, pastors, cricketers, political leaders. It's just so easy to look, raise an eyebrow and judge. But the fact is that deep down, each one of us knows that we too are weak. And maybe the only significant difference is that our failings will never play out on such public a forum as theirs. Those close to us know we fail. Our spouse, children, parents. We are fractured, fallen, faulty. We let people down. But our God in heaven is perfect, holy, faultless. 
And friends, that is the theme of our Lent series this year, that people are faulty, but that our God is faultless. And what we will see together today is that for those who know they are faulty, there is great hope. Friends, today we're going to walk with one such faulty man. We don't know a lot about him, but there is something wonderful about him. His name is Nicodemus. And we only ever read his name in the Bible five times in three spots and all in one book, the book of John, which is where we will begin today. So we first meet Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. We see here that Nicodemus, whoever he is, is a Pharisee. That's a Jewish religious lawyer who lives like the way to get to God is through morality and religiosity and law-keeping. These people were very strict, both on themselves and others. And he came to Jesus at night. Easy to miss, isn't it? But a big theme, as many of you will know, that runs through John's Gospel is light and dark, where light symbolises knowledge and darkness symbolises confusion. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. What we will soon see is that Israel's own teacher is spiritually in the dark, groping around blindly, not seeing the light of the world who's standing in front of him. Nicodemus here gives us a great picture of what religion generally ends up becoming. A human attempt to grope around and somehow find God, somehow find a point of contact between God, whoever he is, and us. Nicodemus is a brilliant example of the person who seeks God through religion. He has studied the texts. He has kept the laws. But he's walking in the dark, still searching, still seeking. Religion has not given him the peace in his heart, the rest in his soul he so longs for. There are many who try to find God like Nicodemus through formal religious institutions such as the temple or the mosque or the church. But how do you ever know if God accepts all you do? There are others, aren't there, who try to find that peace, that rest, that sense of purpose in other ways. Very common in Australia, you'll know, is materialism, where that gnawing sense of dissatisfaction in life is diluted by the purchase of new toys, be it a car or a new property or another cruise, only to find that the comfort it brings wears off after a short time. Others still see the shortcomings of religiosity on the one hand, materialism on the other. They turn inward to intellectualism. This is where people come to believe that their sense of place in the world is made the more secure by the sharpening of their mind. So these are people who throw years at reading and studying and thinking, assuming that knowledge will answer the deepest questions. Peter Singer is an Australian ethicist who is currently the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He's sold thousands of books, influenced thousands of minds. He's been very influential in the area of abortion and euthanasia. His argument, in essence is that the value of a person is found in their capacity to be rational, autonomous, and self-conscious. 
So that being the case, he then argues that both abortion and euthanasia are morally permissible because both infants and, for example, those with dementia are not rational, autonomous or self-conscious. Then his mother got dementia. And he was asked famously about this by a journalist. His response was, I think this has made me see how the issues for someone with these kinds of problems are really very difficult. You see, intellectualism will get you a long way. But whilst it might answer the questions of how we live, love, suffer and die, it cannot answer the question of why we live, love, suffer and die. See, if intellectualism is all you've got, then we end up in the dark, stumbling and searching. Well, back to Nicodemus. Keep in mind the darkness of his understanding. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. You know, one of the things that we notice about Jesus as we read the Gospels is that he always has this divine ability to see into a person's heart. Someone might ask a certain question, but Jesus' answer always addresses what they're really deeply thinking. That is what happens here. So in verse 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, Jesus' response is familiar to us because it's been popularized by American Christianity. You must be born again. But for Nicodemus, he has never heard this phrase in his life. And straight away, we see light crashing into darkness. We see one who is searching and faulty, crashing into the one who knows the way. The very next words from Nicodemus utter the, reveal the depth of his confusion. It's verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be more born. You see, Nicodemus thinks the way to God is by religion. But Jesus is talking about something entirely different and perplexing to him. Jesus is not talking about human birth, as Nicodemus thinks. But he is talking about something just as extraordinary, a new life, a new beginning. What Jesus is saying here is that to know God, to end the search, to engage with that faultiness within, you have to start over. And and the new start that Jesus is speaking about here is so dramatic that the only metaphor Jesus can use to describe it is human birth, that event that brings someone new into the world for the very first time. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, when you find God, you'll be like that. When you find your way out of religion and legalism, it'll be like you've never lived before. And this transformation will be God's work, Nicodemus. It won't come from your own efforts. The Spirit of God moves and transforms people. That's what verse 8 says. Jesus says that belonging to God is not something you're born into. Oh, I'm an Anglican. I'm a Presbyterian. It is an act of God himself. And Israel's teacher is dumbfounded. All he can utter is, how can this be? And then to this man who has approached Jesus under cover of darkness, Jesus gives him this major clue, which might just help him find his way to the light. It's in verses 14 and 15. Now, Jesus here refers to an incident that Nicodemus, as Israel's teacher, would have been well aware of. A thousand years earlier, when Israel were wandering in the desert, God gave to Israel a bronze snake on a pole. This would be the means by which the people would be saved if they were ever bitten by a snake and dying. 
So Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that snake and people found life as they looked to us, so too, Nicodemus, will I be lifted up. And as people look to me, believe in me, they too will live forever. This is the clue that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. If you want to be born again, Nicodemus, if you want to know God, then believe in me when I'm lifted up. But here's the thing. That's where our story ends. The end of chapter 3, Nicodemus is searching and afraid. He's stuck in religiosity, Judaism, Pharisaicism. He's as faulty as ever. And as quickly as we've met Nicodemus, he disappears. We're given a picture of a man who's in darkness, collides with the light, but then he's just gone. Now, one of the mysteries of this story in chapter 3 is what happens to this religious leader who came to Jesus at night? But here's what we have to understand. When faulty people start to meet the faultless saviour, they are slowly, surely, inevitably transformed. If you keep reading John's Gospel, Nicodemus does pop up again for us. It's four chapters later this time in John 7, and we're reading there about a large Jewish feast. It was a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. What we read is that the Jewish leaders at the feast want Jesus killed we soon see why it's because jesus is saying things such as whoever believes in me rivers of living water will flow from within them what jesus is saying to people is that you've been thirsty for a long time judaism has not quenched your thirst but i will now this does not go down well in the city of judaism and then we're taken into this heated conversation between the rules of uh, judaism the pharisees and some guards. The question's all about why didn't the guards arrest Jesus when they saw him? Let's pick it up from verse 50. We read, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, there he is, Nicodemus again. The same Nicodemus who was searching, faulty and afraid in chapter 3, who came to Jesus at night. Now we see here in chapter 7 that he's at the nerve center, in the nerve center of world Judaism. And he asks a very innocent question in a very heated context. What he asks for is that Jesus have a fair hearing. Do you see what happens? He's accused of either being racist on the one hand or ignorant on the other. But here's what I want you to notice. We're seeing a man who is changing. So now here in chapter 7, under enormous pressure, Nicodemus ever so cautiously defends Jesus, or at the very least he defends the process of natural justice for Jesus. When faulty people meet the faultless saviour, They are slowly, surely, inevitably transformed. Back to chapter 7. Nicodemus disappears again. That's it from the story. We don't know if he stood up or backed down. We don't know if he cried out an undying confession of faith or if he completely rejected Jesus. We just don't know. But before Nicodemus is consigned to the history books, we're given one last snapshot of him, one more insight. This time, it comes right at the end of John's Gospel. In fact, 
after Jesus has been killed. It comes right after the crucifixion when Jesus' body has been taken down from the cross. Now, many of you who know your Bibles will know that it was Joseph of Arimathea who came to take Jesus' body. But I wonder if you recall that there was a second person there. This is what we read in John 19.39. Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. So this mysterious Nicodemus pops up one final time, right at Jesus' death. Now, please be clear what Nicodemus is doing here. He's cleaning a corpse. He's preparing a body for burial. There is a man who used to go to my church, an oncology nurse, whose job it was, once a patient had died, was to prepare their body for the mortuary. Wash the body down, clean the body, and make it as presentable as possible for the things that would then come next. I once asked him, brother, do you like your job? He said to me, I love it. He said, it's such a privilege and honour to spend time with these people uh, before they die and then to treat them with respect once they have died. Isn't it wonderful to have people such as that in our churches and in our health system? But here's the thing. If you are paid to do that, if if that's your job, then respect and honour are wonderful things you can bring to that role. But if you're not paid to do that, if that's not your job, more than that, if you pay to do it, if you bring 35 kilograms of myrrh and aloes to do the job, what could possibly motivate you? I think it has to be love. Nicodemus has already been exposed for speaking up for Jesus once in chapter 7. He'd be a fool to do this now unless he felt there was no other way for him to respond to Jesus. But remember, when faulty people start to meet the faultless saviour, they are slowly, surely, inevitably transformed. And remember that when they first met Jesus and Nicodemus back in chapter 3, Jesus gave Nicodemus a clue. To this man who was lost and trying to work his way to God, stumbling in the dark, Jesus said, if you want to be born again, if you want to know God, then believe in me when I'm lifted up. Do you remember? And now, not hours after Jesus has been lifted up on a cross, crucified for the sins of the world, we see this same man, Nicodemus, loving Jesus, showing respect and honour, believing in him. Brothers and sisters, do you see what's happened to Nicodemus? It seems that he's come to recognise the faultless saviour. It seems that he's come to know his own faulty ways. It seems that he's found salvation, the way to God. And here's what happens when Jesus finds you. First, you become intrigued by who this man is and what this man says. If you listen to him, he stretches your brain and then your heart. That's Nicodemus in chapter 3. Then what happens is you start to forget about those around you who influence you and have power over you. You start to care less about the fact that maybe your family think you're crazy or your colleagues disagree with you. That's Nicodemus chapter 7. And then you grow to have this desire to bring all you have, all you are to Jesus because you love him so much. That's Nicodemus chapter 19. Why? Why? 
because you just know how desperate you were before you found him. That sense of faultiness that we all carry or sin, as the Bible calls it, nothing we could do can ever address that. I mean, we paper over it here and there, we distract ourselves from it now and then, but it's always there, deep down, gnawing at us. And then you come face to face with the faultless saviour. When you meet Jesus, you come to trust in who he is and what he's done for us. And we find our way home to our Heavenly Father, forgiven, free, faultless. Well, friends, let me finish. I started today by talking about faulty people, judges, soldiers, pastors, cricketers, political leaders. I want to tell you about just one more. His name was David. He was a leader, powerful, admired and revered. He'd proven himself to be courageous and trustworthy in a whole lot of situations, both personal, professional and political. But David found himself drawn towards a woman who was not his wife. And despite knowing better, he used his position and authority. He misused his power to seduce this woman and have an affair with her. The woman was married, her husband a soldier. And concerned that her husband would find out, David arranged to have her husband placed in a position within the army that would ensure that he would likely be killed in conflict. That is exactly what happened. Now, I started by speaking about people who have fallen, public figures who have failed to live up to who they should have been. Well, David fell in every area that all the others did combined. So like the judge, he lied to cover his tracks. Like the soldiers, he abused his authority on the battlefield. Like the pastor, he breached trust and fell into significant moral failure. Like the cricketers, he cheated to get what he wanted. Like the political leader, he abused his power. His name was King David, actually. In many ways, Israel's greatest king. But so, so faulty. Do you remember at the start of the sermon I said that there is great hope for those who know they're faulty? And despite David's great wicked failings, he came to understand his faultiness. He came to grasp how faithful his God was. We know this because David wrote a song after he'd fallen. We have that song. It's called Psalm 51. Listen to what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No spin, no justification, no half apologies, no media statements, just repentance for sin and faith in God. I have sinned, but you can restore. And friends, so do us. We are faulty people. But like Nicodemus, the closer we get to Jesus, the more astounding he becomes to us. And where that leads is to the place where we know that as we confess, as we repent, like King David, the faultless saviour forgives, 
restores, revives. This Easter, may you know the hope and freedom and grace of sins forgiven and of life restored. May God bless you all.